In early July 1892, 56-year-old steel tycoon Andrew Carnegie was enjoying a vacation in Scotland with his wife Louise. As a Scotsman who emigrated to the United States in poverty, Carnegie may have looked like he was simply visiting the homeland to flaunt his hard-earned wealth. In fact, he was also dodging a major issue with his business. At the Homestead Steel Mill, workers were preparing to strike. His company had hired 300 men to break the strike, and Carnegie did not want to be around for what happened next. On July 6th, steel workers clashed with the company's agents. Both sides were armed. By the time the battle ended, at least 10 people lay dead. When asked to comment on the tragedy, Carnegie pointed to the fact that he'd left his business partner, Henry Clay Frick, in charge of the whole affair. He said, quote, I have given up all active control. Of course, Carnegie knew exactly who Frick was, exactly the kinds of methods he'd rely on to deal with the strikers. His absence just gave him the convenient excuse of plausible deniability. But in the end, the schemes all pointed toward one truth. For Carnegie, all that mattered was crushing any obstacle between him and profit, even if that meant a trail of blood on the factory floor. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free on Spotify. This season, we're exploring the Gilded Age, when the first American robber barons rose to power. Unlike most traditional dictators, these tyrants used financial power to control the lives of workers and create lasting inequality in the U.S., this week, we'll explore the life of one of the most prominent robber barons of the era, Andrew Carnegie. An immigrant from Scotland, Carnegie personified the quintessential tale of rags to riches. But in building his empire of steel, he made a deal with the devil, pitting himself and his profits against the workers that made it all possible. We'll head to Scotland right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The United States was founded on liberal ideals, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Men, at least white landowning ones, were created equal, and no government should get in the way of success. It was an inspiring message for immigrants coming from the rigid social hierarchies of Europe. America belonged to them. It was a place where no matter who you were born as, you could turn yourself into a man of fortune. No one made this promise look truer than Andrew Carnegie. Unfortunately, in the process of accumulating his unbelievable hordes of power and wealth, Carnegie forgot his humble roots. Born in the autumn of 1835, Carnegie and his family lived in the Scottish town of Dunfermline near Edinburgh. According to historian David Nassau, Dunfermline was already, in 1835, an epicenter for the Industrial Revolution. During the first half of the 19th century, the town was economically prosperous, especially when it came to textiles. Carnegie's father, William, was a handloom weaver, and by the time Andrew was born, a moderately prosperous one. But success didn't last. In 1837, the U.S. suddenly found itself in an economic depression, which reverberated to Scotland. As poverty struck in America, the demand for fine linens diminished. By September 1837, over 1,000 handloom weavers in Dunfermline were out of work or on strike. William Carnegie was hit hard by the sudden downturn in demand. Even worse, he refused to adapt and find a new way to make a living. By most accounts, William was lazy. Though he was considered a decent chap and good churchman, he also had a poor work ethic. As a result, young Andrew seemingly grew to resent his father. Instead, he looked to someone else for inspiration, his mother, Margaret. By the 1840s, Margaret Carnegie took charge of the family's financial survival. She not only helped her brother in his cobbler shop, but also began a small business selling baked goods and other groceries. Margaret was tough and diligent, and something of a taskmaster. She had to be. She made sure she ingrained the value of hard work in Andrew and her younger son, Tom. Andrew took to the lessons immediately. In between schooling, 10-year-old Andrew helped out his mother by running errands, bookkeeping, and working the counter at her small store. Still, despite their best efforts, the family continued to toil in near poverty. Margaret Carnegie decided the only solution was a change, and a big one, America. So, in 1848, 12-year-old Andrew left Dunfermline with his mother, father, and little Tom. The family sailed to the United States and eventually laid down their roots in Allegheny City, a town that would later be absorbed into Pittsburgh. 
By the mid-19th century, Pittsburgh was a major industrial center. With roughly 50,000 people, the city was home to a plethora of job opportunities, including iron factories, cotton mills, and tanneries. Working conditions were brutal, but finding a job wasn't nearly as difficult as it had been in Scotland. Unfortunately, William Carnegie refused to provide for the family. Though he continued to make linens by hand, his pride wouldn't allow him to look for a factory job. Once again, Margaret and Andrew became the family's breadwinners. For the next few years, the teenaged Andrew bounced around various jobs. His first was in a weaving factory as a bobbin boy. He went from loom to loom, handing the mill girls spindles of cotton or wool. He did this for 12 hours a day, six days a week, and for only $1.20 a week. Even in 2021 dollars, that's only about $42 for six 12-hour days. Andrew quickly realized that success in the factory had a limit. If he really wanted to prosper, he needed to get a job in an office. He found one as a messenger boy for the Atlantic and Ohio Telegraph Company, where he saw that the way to advance was by becoming an operator. In order to do that, Andrew taught himself Morse code and quickly impressed his superiors with his speed and ability to fill in for sick employees. Finally, when Andrew was 15, he was promoted to operator. From there, Andrew continued to impress the people around him, becoming one of the fastest operators in the office. Meanwhile, working for the telegraph company exposed Andrew to the world of Pittsburgh's business class. And as his reputation as a proficient, diligent operator grew, he suddenly found businessmen seeking him out. In particular, a man named Tom Scott. In 1853, Tom Scott was the superintendent for the Western Division of the Pennsylvania Railroad. His job was to oversee the line between Pittsburgh and Altoona. Unfortunately, he faced a major problem, communication. Scott and his partners realized that to tighten up their operation, they needed to build telegraph lines along their routes, which, of course, meant they needed a private operator. The best person Scott could think of was 17-year-old Andrew Carnegie. Andrew didn't give the job offer a second thought. He recognized that railroads were the future, and the Pennsylvania Railroad in particular was on the cusp of a major expansion. Plus, it paid more. Unfortunately, a few years after Andrew entered the new and exciting world of railroads, tragedy struck. In October 1855, William Carnegie died of unknown causes. Emotionally, it was a blow. And while William had never been a major source of financial help for the family, his death also heaped even more economic uncertainty on the Carnegie's plates. Andrew was not about to let his mother bear the brunt of that. He adored her and even promised, quote, Someday I'll be rich and we'll ride in a fine coach driven by four horses. He just had to keep pushing till they got there. Andrew remained Tom Scott's personal operator, but the position quickly evolved into Scott's personal assistant, too, which meant that Andrew got a crash course in railroad management and free market capitalism. 
With Scott as his teacher, Andrew learned about investing. And at the end of 1855, Scott approached Andrew with an opportunity to purchase shares of stock in Adams Express, a freight and cargo company. Andrew was interested, but he didn't have the money. So Scott loaned him $500, and Margaret Carnegie agreed to put the family's home up as collateral. The stock purchase came with a guaranteed monthly dividend check of $10. When that first check came in, Andrew shouted, Eureka! Here's the goose that lays the golden eggs. With Scott's help, Andrew realized that he didn't always have to work for his money. Rather, he could put his money to work. Within a few years, Andrew had saved enough money to pay off the family's debts. Soon, Margaret was able to retire. Never again would she have to toil as a cobbler's assistant. Andrew, meanwhile, continued to climb the ranks. In 1859, the 24-year-old was promoted to superintendent of the Western Division of Scott's Railroad, making an annual salary of $1,500. That's close to $50,000 in 2021 dollars. He used the money to invest in more companies. In particular, a venture which specialized in sleeping cars. After all, Western expansion would require some comfort. This breakneck trajectory up the Pittsburgh business ranks met an interruption in 1861, the outbreak of the Civil War. But it wasn't necessarily a bad interruption as far as Andrew Carnegie's career was concerned. Tom Scott was named Assistant Secretary of War, and he summoned Andrew to Washington to help him coordinate the Union Army's rail system. In particular, he needed Andrew's help reopening Washington, which had been cut off by the rebels. Andrew managed to accomplish this task quickly by overseeing the construction of new tracks and telegraph lines in and out of the capital. Within four months, the trains were running, and Andrew was back in Pittsburgh. By the time he'd left, Andrew had learned an important lesson. He had absolutely no desire to pursue a future in politics. Politics were messy, bureaucratic, and far from the most profitable venture, as far as he could tell. He'd stick to private enterprise from now on, wherever his career took him next. Because now that he was almost 26, with a government job on his resume, Andrew knew that it was time for something new. While briefly dabbling in oil, Andrew started thinking about what was coming down the pipeline once this war ended. He was sure that westward expansion would only speed up and there would be a major construction boom, especially with railroads. But Andrew knew enough about railroads now to know that before you could build a track, you needed an abundance of one thing, iron. Andrew's entry into the iron business was complicated and obtuse. His first move involved resolving a dispute between three feuding partners at the Cloman and Phipps Iron City Forge. Andrew's solution was to convince one of the irritable partners, a man named Tom Miller, to leave the firm. He then had his brother buy some shares from one of the other partners and join the company. However, Andrew wasn't done. In spring of 1864, Andrew and Miller agreed to start their own ironworks, Cyclops Iron Company, which they would build four blocks from Cloman and Phipps. 
For the first few months, the two iron companies battled it out. But by 1865, the competition was doing more harm than good, so they decided to merge. In May 1865, Cloman and Phipps and Cyclops Iron became Union Iron Mills. 29-year-old Andrew Carnegie became its president, and his brother was named vice president. This first painstakingly maneuvered merger would become the first step toward building one of the largest steel empires in the world. Coming up, Andrew Carnegie corners steel and makes a deal with the devil. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility, and some implausible ones too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I use social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation. Because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. By the end of 1865, 30-year-old Andrew Carnegie had thrown himself into the iron business. He'd succeeded in merging two Pittsburgh ironworks and become president of the Union Iron Mills. In the process, he laid the foundation for an empire. A lot of Carnegie's success came from double dealing. Union Iron Mills received many of their iron contracts from another company called Keystone Bridge, which Carnegie also happened to own. And Keystone Bridge's main customer was his old employer, Pennsylvania Railroad. Though Carnegie resigned from Pennsylvania Railroad to dedicate his time to iron, he and his mentor, Tom Scott, remained close. Scott used Keystone Bridge and, by proxy, Union Iron to build railways and bridges for Pennsylvania Railroad. It was no skin off his back. After all, Scott held stocks in Keystone, so everyone was making money. Still, Carnegie yearned for more than just Pennsylvania Railroad projects. Traveling up and down the Mississippi River, Carnegie looked for other bridge contracts. And in 1867, he won his most ambitious yet, the St. Louis Bridge. 
Crossing 2,300 feet over the mighty Mississippi River, the project was one of the biggest contracts Carnegie accepted at that time. The project was estimated to cost roughly $5 million, about $93 million in 2021 dollars. To help finance the project, Carnegie sold bonds in his company. But he didn't rely solely on American investors. After the Civil War, many European businessmen invested in the U.S., and Carnegie decided to take advantage. In 1870, he went to London and met with an American expatriate named Junius Morgan. Morgan was a banker and financier living in London and making deals within the British markets. He was also the father to the young financial tycoon in the making, J.P. Morgan. Ultimately, however, the St. Louis Bridge, known today as the Eads Bridge, would prove to be a financial failure. The project fell behind schedule and didn't open until 1874. By that point, other bridges had been built, and the St. Louis Bridge became nothing more than a tourist attraction. Carnegie, shrewd as he was, recognized that the bridge was going to be a financial disaster as early as 1871. As construction delays mounted, he and his partners decided to sell their stock in the company, saving themselves from financial ruin. Meanwhile, although the St. Louis Bridge wasn't a financial bonanza, it did produce one major success, though it took Carnegie time to realize it. When he first won the contract, Carnegie was forced to work with a civil engineer named James Buchanan Eads. Eads was responsible for most of the design and the construction, and he insisted on using steel, which Carnegie hated. At the time, steel was far more expensive to produce and not nearly as strong as pure iron. Plus, there weren't nearly enough steel mills to produce the amount required to make the bridge. However, in the summer of 1872, while on his bond-selling trip in Europe, Carnegie toured the Bessemer steel plant in Sheffield, England, where he witnessed the latest advances with the Bessemer process. Invented by Henry Bessemer, the Bessemer process used giant pear-shaped converters to blast oxygen into molten iron, expelling all its impurities. As a result, the byproduct steel became not only stronger, but also cheaper and easier to produce. After seeing the process in action, Carnegie realized that steel might not only be better than iron, but also his future. When he returned to the U.S. later that fall, he decided to go all in on steel production. In 1873, Carnegie broke ground on the Edgar Thompson Steelworks, named after J. Edgar Thompson, the first president of Pennsylvania Railroad. Investing $250,000 of his own money at the time, Carnegie was putting all of his eggs in one basket. The timing couldn't have been worse. In September, the Panic of 1873 sank the U.S. into a depression which resulted in a massive halt on railroad construction. No railroads, no steel. Carnegie's new venture looked doomed from the start. But Carnegie was not about to just give up. One of the key aspects to his success, both through the Depression and beyond, was his methodical bookkeeping. He never wanted to know the profit, but the cost of a project. 
This allowed him to figure out ways to make budget cuts, especially when it came to labor. But perhaps his most consequential action during the Depression was that he constantly undercut rival companies' steel prices. As author Les Standiford writes, while other manufacturers were charging $70 a ton for rails, Carnegie offered his for $65. This ultimately allowed him to squeeze out the competition. And as the Depression lingered, the prices for raw materials started to fall, which meant that even at Carnegie's lowered prices, he was still making a profit. Of course, the backbone of the business was still finding projects. In 1876, he provided the steel and iron for the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia. Then, two years later, he supplied all the steel for the Brooklyn Bridge. While most Americans, especially trained tycoons, suffered, Andrew Carnegie thrived. In 1878, the Edgar Thompson Steelworks made a profit of more than $400,000. The following year, $512,000. And the year after that, $1.5 million. About $40 million in 2021 dollars. The success came with just one problem, an inability to keep up with demand. In particular, when it came to the Coke ovens. An essential ingredient to making steel is coke, a type of fuel usually made from coal, which acts as a reducing agent when smelting iron ore. In order to make coke, you need special ovens. In the early days, Carnegie bought his own coke ovens. However, as his business grew, their limited capacity actually incentivized Carnegie to just buy coke on the open market. So by 1881, Andrew Carnegie decided he would look for someone to purchase his Coke ovens and find a Coke supplier. It led him directly to one of the most controversial, ruthless businessmen in America, Henry Clay Frick. The son of moderately successful farmers, the serious Henry Clay Frick never wanted to toil on the family farm. Like Carnegie, he was a capitalist to his bones. In 1868, Frick moved to Pittsburgh. After working desk jobs for a few years, he was unable to ignore the city's leading industries, iron and steel. However, Frick opted to enter them through a less glitzy byroad, Coke. In 1871, he convinced family and friends, including a young Andrew Mellon, future Secretary of the Treasury, to invest in his H.C. Frick Coke Company. Within two years, Frick would own 200 Coke ovens. Like Carnegie, Frick turned the depression caused by the Panic of 1873 to his advantage. Though Coke sales declined, Frick was successful enough to buy out failing rivals, acquiring more ovens and coal lands. By 1882, Frick was the king of Coke. He owned over 3,000 acres of coal lands and more than 1,000 coke ovens across nine plants in southeastern Pennsylvania. Naturally, he was the perfect business partner for Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie and Frick met in New York City in December 1881. At the time, Frick was on his honeymoon, but Carnegie, who now lived in New York, didn't want to waste the opportunity, so he invited Frick over to talk shop. 
Carnegie's initial proposal was for Frick to purchase his ovens. But Frick was heavily in debt at the time. He couldn't afford them. So they landed on a different plan. HCF Coke would become the exclusive Coke supplier for Carnegie's company, Carnegie Brothers and Company, and Carnegie would purchase 11% of Frick's company. They sealed the deal with a champagne toast and began the partnership of a lifetime, for better and for worse. As steel pumped through Andrews Mills, Frick fueled them. Within 14 months, Frick's company produced close to 1 million tons of coke for Carnegie. Meanwhile, Frick's obsession with acquiring more land and ovens actually benefited Carnegie. In order to pay for the investments, Frick continuously sold shares of his company to Carnegie. By 1888, Carnegie actually controlled 74% of Frick's company. Still, this massively profitable alliance was not without its problems. As time went on, Frick's ambition irritated Carnegie, especially when it became clear that Frick wanted to enter the steel industry. Though Carnegie respected Frick's cutthroat business style, he expected Frick to stay in his lane. The tensions might have exploded if tragedy hadn't struck first, changing everything for Carnegie. In the fall of 1886, Andrew's younger brother and right-hand man, Tom, fell ill with pneumonia. On October 19th, Tom died. Where Andrew was the brains and the money of the growing empire, Tom was its manager. The two were very close. The only people Carnegie trusted more than Tom were his mother, Margaret, and later his soon-to-be wife, Louise. His loss was devastating, but business didn't wait for grief. And Carnegie knew that there was really only one person who could replace Tom, Henry Clay Frick. So, two weeks after Tom's death, Carnegie offered Frick 2% of Carnegie Brothers. Within three years, Frick would be named chairman of the company, which gave him power over day-to-day -day operations. The timing couldn't have been worse. Throughout the 1880s, a labor movement sprouted out of the decades of brutal working conditions and low wages. The working class had grown tired of putting their lives on the line so the tycoons could profit. For a few years, Carnegie and Frick were able to avoid major strikes. But in 1892, workers at Carnegie's Homestead Steel Mill decided they had had enough. Which is when Carnegie made his first big mistake. He left Frick to deal with the riled-up mill workers. Coming up, the ghosts of the Homestead strike haunt Andrew Carnegie for the rest of his life. Now, back to the story. For two decades, Andrew Carnegie devoted his efforts to building a steel empire. By the start of the 1890s, he was undoubtedly one of the most successful men in the world. Part of Carnegie's success came from a mutually beneficial alliance with Henry Clay Frick. Their collaboration gave Carnegie the necessary coke for steel production, which allowed them to obtain contracts both home and abroad. Still, Carnegie didn't particularly like Frick. As he became more powerful, he expected people to fall in line. 
and Frick often refused, challenging Carnegie on various business matters. Still, Frick remained a useful tool for Carnegie. Especially when it came to maintaining his image. As Carnegie became increasingly rich, he took it upon himself to tell other rich people how to spend their money. In his 1889 essay, The Gospel of Wealth, Carnegie argues that it is the responsibility of the rich to live modestly and invest surplus wealth back into the community. Carnegie became a major proponent of philanthropy. He donated much of his immense wealth to opening thousands of public libraries as well as research institutions. Many still bear his name today. He also publicly championed the growing labor movement, claiming he was an ally of America's workers. This was a total contradiction to the way he and Frick actually ran their business. Both men were completely aware that the conditions in the mills were dangerous and often life-threatening. Many employees sacrificed limbs while working the furnaces and coke ovens. Wages, meanwhile, were a whopping $2.50 a day. Many workers lived in squalor while Carnegie reaped the profits. They certainly didn't have time or energy to visit the libraries he was opening, even if membership was free. A reckoning was inevitable, but that didn't mean Carnegie was going to admit to his hypocrisy. He would just use Frick. Frick was unabashedly anti-labor and had absolutely no qualms with using violence to put an end to labor strife before it got out of hand. In one prophetic story from 1877, Frick and a deputy assaulted a stubborn railroad striker because the striker refused to vacate a house that Frick had recently sold. Frick had no patience for the working class's complaints. Carnegie used that to his advantage whenever rumors of strike circulated. However, in 1892, the consequences of leaning on Frick became devastatingly clear. One of the first times Carnegie clashed with the Homestead Steel Mill employees was in 1889, when he announced that he was going to reduce wages by 25%. The Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers, the union representing the workers, threatened to strike. Instead, they all agreed to a three-year contract which included wages tied to the price of steel, but with a minimum rate. The contract was set to expire July 1, 1892, and by the start of 1892, steel prices had fallen and management was proposing more wage cuts, never mind the fact that the company had made $4.5 million profit the previous year. Carnegie wanted to break the union, but he didn't want to get his hands dirty. So before heading to Scotland for vacation, Carnegie left Frick in charge. During negotiations with the union, Frick refused to budge on anything. Adding to the contentious talks, Frick installed an 11-foot-high barbed wire fence around the plant. The mill became known as Fort Frick. A couple of days before the contract was set to expire, Frick refused to negotiate with the union and shut down the mill. In response, the employees of the mill, including non-union members, stood in solidarity and voted to strike. 
In the meantime, Frick covertly hired the Pinkertons, a notorious private security firm known for violently breaking strikes. On July 6th, roughly 300 Pinkertons arrived at Homestead. When word reached union members, many of them armed themselves and greeted the Pinkertons as they barricaded themselves inside the mill. Throughout the entire day, the union members and the Pinkertons traded fire. Finally, at around 5 p.m., the Pinkertons surrendered, and a special train was brought in to allow them to retreat. When the dust settled, at least 10 people lay dead. Henry Clay Frick was furious, so much so that he requested help from the governor of Pennsylvania. A few days after the July 6th battle, Roughly 8,500 National Guard troops descended on Homestead, took hold of the mill, and placed the entire town under martial law. The strike itself continued, but by August, Frick was able to bring in enough scabs that the strike was all but ineffective. Making matters even worse for the Union, an unaffiliated Russian anarchist attempted to assassinate Frick. He shot his target twice and stabbed him a few times, and somehow Frick still managed to best his assassin in a fistfight. Public opinion swayed toward Frick. Finally, in November, the Amalgamated Association gave up. The Homestead Strike of 1892, one of the bloodiest labor disputes in U.S. history, ended in failure. Throughout the entire strike, Andrew Carnegie was in Europe and kept mostly updated through news reports and letters from Frick. Early on, he supported Frick's decision to bring in the Pinkertons and the National Guard. In fact, when Carnegie learned that the National Guard was coming, he wrote, Governor's action settles matters. All right now. No compromise. By the time the strike ended in November, however, Carnegie experienced a change of heart. Privately, he was telling friends that he neither sanctioned nor condoned the violence, and the blood was solely on Frick's hands. If he were there, he would have kept the mill closed until the strikers broke. This new perspective was most likely informed by public sentiment. While the strikers were widely condemned, so was the management that let things get so violent and out of hand. Carnegie realized that his name would forever be linked to the violence at Homestead. And by all accounts, that realization led to a genuine sense of remorse for what occurred. Frick, on the other hand, remained unrepentant. In a November letter to Carnegie, Frick wrote that, We had to teach our employees a lesson, and we have taught them one they will never forget. Still, Carnegie's attempts to thrust all the blame on Frick were deluded at best, and regret is a far cry from innocence. Despite the public relations hit, Carnegie's business didn't suffer. Carnegie Steel, as the company was now called, continued to reign as America's leading steel producer, and profits climbed each year. By 1897, Profits reached $7 million. But behind the scenes, the relationship between Carnegie and Frick continued to fracture. In 1894, Carnegie decided to buy a rival Coke company, and a year later, he reorganized the company, diminishing Frick's role. Perhaps he meant to atone for Homestead. But maybe not. 
Frick gave Carnegie plenty of other reasons to hate him, too. In the spring of 1899, when 63-year-old Carnegie began ruminating about retirement, Frick tried to get Carnegie to sell to a group of speculators, the kind of businessmen Carnegie hated. Luckily for Carnegie, the men were unable to acquire the funds in time, and the deal went nowhere. Then, later that year, Carnegie discovered two major problems. First, HCF Coke Company raised its prices on Carnegie Steel, breaking a previous agreement for fixed prices. Second, Frick was trying to sell Carnegie a large parcel of land at a ridiculously marked-up price. Frick had purchased it for under $700 an acre, but was asking for $3,500. Frick had gone too far. In less than a year, he tried to sell the company to scoundrels, broke a price agreement, and was attempting to swindle his business partners on a land deal. In retaliation, Andrew made it clear that he was going to abolish Frick's chairman position at Carnegie Steel at the upcoming December board meeting. When word of the plan reached Frick, he was irate, but saw only one way to get out of the situation with some dignity. He announced his resignation. Adding insult to injury, Carnegie also announced that he was going to consolidate HCF Coke, where Frick was still chairman of the board. However, Carnegie claimed that Frick's price agreement violation meant that he would have to surrender his stake. Frick sued and ultimately received a $31 million settlement. It was a bit of revenge, but it was worth it for Carnegie. He had finally ousted his longtime business partner, the albatross no longer on his neck. At the start of the 20th century, the newly formed Carnegie Steel Company was still the dominant force when it came to steel production. And with Frick gone, Carnegie felt a new sense of competitive rejuvenation. It appeared that he had no intention of slowing down. But then, at the beginning of 1901, 65-year-old Carnegie received a sudden offer from the company's president, Charles Schwab. After a round of golf, Schwab informed Carnegie that financial tycoon J.P. Morgan wanted to buy the company and that Carnegie could name his price. As it turned out, Schwab and Morgan had spent weeks negotiating a possible sale. Morgan, who had interest in steel, knew he could never take out the king unless he bought out the king. After the golf game, Carnegie went home and thought about it. What exactly went through his mind is a mystery. In all likelihood, he saw Morgan's offer as the golden opportunity to retire and spend time with his family. The next day, Carnegie presented Schwab with a number, $480 million. Schwab immediately told Morgan, and Morgan accepted it on the spot. A few days later, Morgan arrived at Carnegie's New York home to finalize the terms. When they finished, Morgan said, Mr. Carnegie, I want to congratulate you on being the richest man in the world. When J.P. Morgan officially created U.S. Steel in March 1901, Andrew Carnegie had absolutely nothing to do with it. He was offered shares, but he refused, because he knew it would mean he wasn't really retired. Carnegie's share of the deal came to about $225 million. That's over $7 billion in 2021 dollars. 
With that wealth, he devoted the next two decades of his life to philanthropy. He continued to open public libraries, fund educational and scientific research institutions, as well as establish foundations. At the same time, Carnegie became a vocal advocate for world peace and hoped to use his wealth to put an end to future wars. In his final days, Carnegie even sought to make peace with his partner-turned-enemy, Henry Clay Frick. In the spring of 1919, Carnegie sent his personal secretary to Frick with a letter in the hopes of meeting and patching things up. Frick responded, Yes, you can tell Carnegie I'll meet him. Tell him I'll see him in hell, where we both are going. According to author Les Standiford, Carnegie was disheartened by Frick's rebuff. Perhaps because it reminded him of something he'd rather have forgotten, the men who died for his fortune. Nevertheless, the end was coming. At the beginning of August 1919, 83-year-old Carnegie came down with pneumonia. On August 11th, he passed away. One of the most powerful and richest men in history was gone. Without question, Andrew Carnegie was the quintessential example of the American dream. Born impoverished in Scotland, he seized every opportunity the United States had to offer a young immigrant boy and became one of the richest men in the world. Unlike some of his contemporaries, Andrew actively sought to use his wealth for good. In fact, by the time he died, he had donated an estimated $350 million to philanthropic causes, a figure that would be over $10 billion today. But it can't be ignored how he got there. His business tactics involved exploiting the laborers in his mills, cutting costs and safety in order to squeeze as much profit as possible. At the same time, he relied on the ruthless Henry Clay Frick to do his dirty work. Andrew Carnegie may have been the epitome of the American dream, but he was also a true embodiment of the Gilded Age robber baron. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore the life of oil baron John D. Rockefeller. Among the many sources we used, we found Andrew Carnegie by David Nassau and Meet You in Hell by Les Standiford extremely useful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Tony Goodman and Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. 
following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder. We'll journey through the many reasons people disappear. Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.